Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. As you know, we um, love to be able to give opportunities uh, to preach. I do, at least, uh, for other people. And so we're grateful to have Kenan be able to come and share um, uh, and preach uh, on this passage this morning. So please welcome Kenan. I didn't notice that either. <laughs> so we're not going to be talking about it. <laughs> You're just going to have to throw your sermon out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this week, I decided to take a page out of Mark's book and start by talking about a song. So has anybody heard the song Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival? Yes. <clears throat> If you haven't, it's a relatively short song, a little bit over two minutes long, and the premise is very simple. Some people in this life are more fortunate than I am. And it talks about the sons of senators who use their privilege to get out of army drafts, 
the sons of millionaires who face no financial worry in their life. And it came out in 1969 and resonated with many Americans who felt that they were being drafted into the Vietnam War by force while the rich got out of it through their privilege, through, their, through that power. So uh, raise your hand if you are a son of a millionaire or a senator. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll have like a surprise inheritance. <laughs> but yeah, I, don't, I didn't think that any of us related to that level of privilege. And while we should recognize the blessings that we have as first world Americans, there is a 1% privilege that we do not have where people have all this money, all this power, and can circumvent many of the troubles of this world. We don't have that power to use daddy's name and get out of problems. But the passage that we are looking at today talks about our Heavenly Father. We are sons of the Almighty God, but why doesn't that get us out of suffering? If God is better than these mighty men of earth, why are their sons better off than his? Why do we still suffer? Why do we still have problems that we can't get around? And we're aware of those problems in each other's lives. We come together, we share our prayer requests. We are, for the most part, aware of the problems that are plaguing the people sitting beside us. Why, as sons of God, do we not have that level of privilege? That's what I think the author of Hebrews is talking about in our passage today. So we're going to be looking at what is the privilege that comes with being a son of God, and how does that help us with suffering? So let's jump back into the passage and reread verses 1 through 4. Can't read the Bible too many times. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So that first section starts by reminding us of the great cloud of witnesses that we saw last week. If you weren't here, we talked about Hebrews chapter 11, where we saw 16 exemplars of the faith from the Old Testament by name, and many more unnamed. And one thing that we learned from that chapter is that nobody shows faith without having a despite. Abel showed faith to God despite being murdered. Noah showed faith to God despite the wickedness of the world around him. Abraham showed faith to God and to his call on his life despite having to leave everything he's ever known. 
And Sarah had faith in God, despite being past childbearing age. So we saw so many great demonstrations of faith from the Old Testament, and we saw all the despites that came along with it. And the author of Hebrews is aware that New Testament Christians have their fair share of despites as well. We have financial problems. We have family problems. We have obstacles to our belief and our faith in Jesus. We have temptation to sin. So the point of showing us all these great examples of the faith is to show us people who maybe went through worse, at least went through comparable experiences, and came out faithful. We should follow their example. Despising our sh- despising the shame, I think. Yep, uh, no, that's Jesus. <laughs> Laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. But out of all those Old Testament examples, there's one person in the entire Bible who always chose faithfulness, who never stumbled. Who do you think that is? <laughs> Jesus, exactly. Good. You get a sucker after this sermon. (laughs) Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Founder because he endured the cross and sacrificed himself for us, for our sins, so that we could put our faith in him, knowing that he will continue to show love to us in the future. He's the perfecter of our faith, which does not mean that our faith is currently perfect. It obviously isn't. That's the problem. But it means that Jesus works in us toward the perfection of our faith and continually does that. But Jesus is not only the founder. He's not only the perfecter. But he's the best example of faith in the Bible. He is the one that we should imitate because there was no better demonstration of faithfulness than his endurance of the shame and the torture and the pain and the death of the cross. Jesus endured so much, and he always chose faithfulness. Now, you may be thinking, that's pretty easy if you're the son of God, which is true to an extent. It's true that Jesus does not hold us to the same standard he held himself. We are never told that we have to be perfect every single time, although we are supposed to try our best and repent of our failings. But we also know that Jesus was 100% man, and he faced every kind of temptation that we face, and he felt pain. He was no, he knew suffering. So we should imitate him. Uh, I think we're all familiar with the phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. If you were an older sibling, you probably had that thrown in your face many times as a kid, like I did. Because in a homeschool family, it's very important to set yourself apart with an identity. But you always have your younger siblings imitating you. So I started piano lessons and then all my brothers started playing piano as well. I went for the really cool faux hawk haircut look 
and it looked really good, but my brothers started imitating it. And I couldn't even have my own sense of style because all of my clothes were handed down to them. So, no luck. But in this passage, we are told to be the annoying younger sibling. We are told to be the ones to imitate our eldest brother in the faith, who we literally worship and adore. We need to imitate his suffering. He went through so much worse than we did, because we have not even resisted to the point of shedding blood. I, don't, I haven't. I don't know about you guys, but I have not. So we are to imitate Jesus. And we also saw that he is the perfecter of our faith. He is working in us to help us respond in faithfulness when we are going through suffering. And in the next section, we see that God the Father is helping to train us toward that response as well. So let's continue reading from verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more? be subject to the Father of Spirits, and live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, in this passage, the author reveals to us that discipline, uh, that suffering is discipline from God. And discipline is so important to our relationship with God that the author tells us, if you were to be without discipline, but all of you have participated in it, but if you were to be without discipline, you would be illegitimate children and not sons. Most of us are parents in this room. Maybe, maybe all of us? I think all of us are parents in this room. And we know the importance of discipline. We also all grew up with that one kid who seemed like he never had any discipline. For me, that kid was named David. David and I went to the same church, and at our church, Foursquare was the premier sport. Your coolness and the number of girls who had a crush on you was directly correlative to how well you could spike a ball across a chalk line. I was really good at it. <laughs> I think the faux hawk kind of helped with the aerodynamic <laughs> part of the game. And therefore, the universal object of desire. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was also directly correlative to the number of girls that liked me. <laughs> Not in the direction you would think, or I would think at least. But David was not very good at Foursquare. And whenever he would get eliminated, he would scream, that's not fair! You cheated! <laughs> Which was never true. 
I don't even know how you cheat in Foursquare. But he became so infamous for this fit that in my family, if you threw a fit, you were called David. <laughs> um, and I, don't, I never met David's parents. I don't know what his background was. But it is true that some kids are immature and throw fits because their parents do not discipline them enough. And I think that it, that shows the importance of discipline because if a parent neglects to discipline their child, they are doing a disservice to their child because they are preventing, they are stunting their growth and maturity. Now, I think it's dangerous to talk about our suffering as discipline from God because there's multiple definitions of the word discipline. I think for many people, discipline is a synonym of punishment. Punishment, uh, discipline is just punishment that a parent doles out to a child who's been bad. And I don't think that's at least not true of all suffering in this world. I don't think that Hannah and I had a miscarriage this summer because God was upset with us for sin. But when you become a parent, maybe before, you realize that there's a deeper meaning to the word discipline than just punishment. It's less punishment and more training. You are training your child to respond to situations in healthy ways. And uh, when I was a kid, my parents always disciplined us through spanking, which, you know, different parents do it in different ways. It's important no matter what. But for spanking, my dad would always tell me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurt you, more than it hurts you. Classic dad line. And as a kid, I had no idea what it meant. I thought he was saying that, like, his hand was going to hurt worse than my butt. And I was like, there's no way that's true. <laughs> but now I get it. Disciplining your children is not fun at all. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody's excited to do it. But it's so important. And it's important as children of God as well. God is helping us. He's training us in holiness because it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If we want to share fellowship with God as our Father, we need to share his holiness, and he is training us in that. There's a quote on the second page of the worship guide that helped me understand this passage by Timothy Keller. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph sold in slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone, and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. So, when you are suffering, it's really hard to tell which situation you're in. But I think it's still good to ask these questions. Why am I suffering? Is there a past wrong or a wrongful pattern in my life that God is teaching me to correct? 
Or is he teaching me a lesson that he wants me to save for the future? Or am I suffering to know that God, to rely on God's love alone, no matter the situation? As our Father, God is not punishing us. He is disciplining us as sons so that we grow in maturity and holiness. Let's finish out the passage. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he had found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So in this last section, we are given different specific commands on how to be holy. We are to resist evil and our weaknesses, leading us to strive for peace with everyone, to tear out any bitterness, and to avoid sexual immorality. Because sin is the opposite of faithfulness. Sin is the opposite of faith. Faith is the assurance in things that you do not see. Sin is relying on what you do see instead. Sin is the opposite response of faith because when we are facing suffering, we face temptation. When we are facing, when we are feeling unloved, sex seems like the thing that will dull that pain. When we are being hurt by someone else, the last thing that we want to do is to strive for peace. And when we are suffering, it leads to discontent and bitterness. In order to resist these sins, we need each other. We need to meet together to remind each other to, remi- to remain faithful to God. We need to pray for each other's suffering and help each other to respond in faithfulness. I really want to hone in on this part about Esau and his birthright. If you need a recap, Esau is a person from the Old Testament who was the older brother of Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in ancient times, the older brother, the eldest brother, had the birthright, which meant that he would receive the lion's share of the inheritance when his father died. You might say that Esau was a fortunate son. Thank you. Call back. If you didn't remember, we talked about fortunate son song at the beginning. So, yeah, that was, that was, that, that's what that was for. Yeah. So, Esau had the birthright. But one day he got really hungry and he sold his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob, for some soup. It was a ridiculous decision. But the author of Hebrews tells us that we are in danger of making as ridiculous a decision. 
Interestingly, in this passage, the oldest son is not the only one who receives the birthright. Because paradoxically, all of God's children receive the lion's share of the inheritance. But when you sin, you are in danger of selling that birthright, of giving away that inheritance, giving it up. In Persian legend, there's a tale of a king who decided to find his most faithful servant. He had it narrowed down to two people, so he called them before him and told them, here are two wicker baskets. Go out to the well. Whoever can fill the basket with water first, bring it back to me, and you will be my chief advisor. So the men went out, but as you would expect, they drew the first bucket of water and poured it into the wicker basket, which is not made to hold water, and the water spilled out of the slits in the side of the basket. After only one attempt, one of the servants said, this is ridiculous, this is a waste of time, this is a meaningless practice, I'm not going to put up with this, and he left. The second servant fought these feelings, although he recognized how meaningless this practice was. But he decided to trust his king that he had his purposes. So all day, he took a bucket from the well, a lot of work, poured it into the basket, and watched the water run out. Finally, when he was near the bottom of the well, almost emptied it, he poured a bucket of water, watched it run out, but saw a glistening diamond ring at the bottom of the basket. Finally, he, reve- he realized the purposes of his king. If he had not continued to draw the water, he would have never gotten the ring from the bottom of the well. And if he had not poured it into a wicker basket, the ring might have been lost when he poured the water out. He brought the basket and the ring back to the king, was elected the chief advisor, and received all the benefits that come with that. If we are faithful to our king, despite what often feels like completely meaningless suffering, he will be faithful to us and we will receive our inheritance. So we should be faithful to God as his sons. We should follow the example of our eldest brother who showed us that you can respond in faith no matter how bad your suffering is. And he helps us by perfecting our faith. We should recognize within suffering an aspect of fatherly discipline, knowing that God is using it to mature us into holiness. And that holiness is what we need to hold on to our birthright, that we will receive our lion's share of the inheritance in heaven. Let us choose perseverance, choose endurance and holiness, and work together as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters of God, so that we can enter and have the joy of being before the throne of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are suffering. We all have different things in our lives that plague us. And we don't know why. We don't know your purposes. God, I pray that you will help us to be faithful even still. Following the examples we have in the Old Testament, and most of all, following the example of our eldest brother in the faith, Jesus. I pray that you will help us to respond to suffering with endurance and faithfulness. God, I pray that you will help us to see the lessons that you have for us in our suffering, no matter how hard it hurts, so that we will know that you are working for our good through this discipline. And God, I pray that you will help us to continue to meet together so that we can continue to strive for holiness together, so that we can hold on to our birthright. God, I thank you so much for perfecting our faith and for working for our good and training us in holiness and, and into faithfulness so that we're not alone, because that's hard. God, I pray that you would just help us to learn to respond in faith, no matter what. In your name, amen.